Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I'm your host, Dwayne Mancini. As always, if you need anything from the podcast or would like to suggest a future guest, please email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. A topic that comes up frequently from listeners is more content on money in medtech. That is an area that I am working on learning more in depth, but as it stands today, I did not feel I was well-versed enough to ask the proper questions to drive the kind of content that was needed. So I reached out for help. This is the first of a long series of special episodes called MedTech Money, powered by Project MedTech. We have partnered with Mr. MedTech himself, Giovanni Lorcella, in a series of podcast episodes focusing on money in the MedTech space. In this episode of the podcast, Giovanni's first guest is Brian Green, the CTO of HMD Labs. In this episode, Giovanni and Brian discuss raising seed funding from a first-time entrepreneur point of view, the decision to leave corporate, taking on an entrepreneur mindset, and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Brian Green. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future of what comes next with Project MedTech. Yeah, go. Let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> Okay, so this is MedTech Money, and we're here today because there's a reason why this podcast exists. I've talked to thousands of MedTech entrepreneurs and investors around the world, and what I've discovered is that there's, there's no magic formula, specific formula, or silver bullet on how to raise or invest capital in MedTech. And, and my goal here is to extract insights and anecdotal stories from entrepreneurs and investors like yourself to help those who can benefit from the information and, and also for generations of professionals to come. So that's why we're here. And, and in my mind, the audience that I can only imagine this benefiting heavily or, or most heavily, um, the audience is no doubt going to be a mixed uh, bag of experts and novices. We get that. But however, I wanted to extract your stories, your insights, advice to share with what I imagine is the first time founder or CEO and has no clue what lies ahead of them on their journey or raising capital, or I should say on raising capital. And the best place to start is, is learning from experienced professionals like yourself. So this particular episode of, of what we're going to be focusing on and, and the reason why Brian's here and I'll let him introduce himself. Um, we're going to be focusing on raising capital from ground zero from the first time ever and more importantly, seed capital and the challenges and the nuances that come with that versus later stage capital, which Brian can speak to. Um, but even more importantly than that, I, I think the holistic story that you've shared with me numerous times, Brian, on where you come from when you decided to take that leap of faith and, and jump off into the entrepreneurial world, and then what you've been able to accomplish in the past nine months is, is it's impressive. So it's a story that I've heard numerous times. It always resonates with me and I want the world to know. So I want to get your story out there. That's, that's why we're here. 
Um, but before we jump into that, and I'm going to let you run and, and tell everything that you need, um, and obviously direct it with some questions. I have two questions that I want to get through just to at least start the conversation. Here's the first one. And just succinctly to your point, um, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of med tech startups? Why or why not? Yes, ultimately I do. Um, people and money. I, I think that you've got to have these people who are the real, real risk takers, right? I mean, if you, if you abstract that one step back, it's not just money. It's venture capital specifically, whether it's from an individual or from a fund or from a family office. This is not cash that's just to be spent on getting things done. This is cash that's designed specifically to create an asset with exponential value. And, and you can't outsource that. You have a very hard time outsourcing that. What you need to do is take that cash and mix it with specific people and ensure they're going to contractors and et cetera. But that, there's a core of people, those founders, that early, you know, however many that understand, I think, and it's been a transition for me even, um, to really think differently about how you spend capital. Because on one hand, it's all, it just looks like money in the bank. But the way you spend your budget in a startup, right? So very specific people in this thought process and what's their goal, right? Like they have a different kind of objective from running a day-to-day -day organization. They have this bigger dream. And, and I think you need the dream and then that capital, which is the fuel. So I, I think there's a ton of other things that go along with it, technology and which market are you in? And there's a ton of other factors. Um, but at the, at the bottom of it, yeah, you have to have both of those things in their purest form. Love it. Okay. Well, thank you for the validation. And my second question for you, before we just jump into your wide open story, if you knew what you know now about being an entrepreneur and raising capital, would you do it all over again? Why? And what would you do differently if you could? Yeah, that's a good one. I've talked to this a couple of times um, with my partner, Kevin, uh, we felt like we had a reasonably good idea of what we, you know, um, some idea of what we were getting into. We knew that there was some education to be done. Um, I mean, I suppose I would say that we would do it again, given that it came out well. If the end of the story was a different, if we were in a different place right now, I'm not sure. I guess there were days between then and now that were kind of dark and pretty scary. There were multiple conversations where we said, what have we done? Right. Um, there was, um, so we did not start. Um, we, 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 we had some founding premises and one of them was that, you know, we want everybody to be able to draw a paycheck. Um, not everybody starts that way. It was a matter of, of culture for us. Um, we didn't want to have to make the shift from everybody's eating ramen to we're market rate. It, 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 you know, to us early on, it felt like a hard shift, but what it also meant was, you know, we had to quickly have a conversation about we're missing paychecks now. Um, and we missed our own. And at that, I know in those days, I was thinking, wow, should we have done this? Um, but that just fuels the fire, honestly. Uh, it made us, uh, we had good leads, right? And this is one of those things that you hear over and over again, right? Somebody tells you I'd love to invest, but until the money is in the bank, it's, that's just a lead, right? It's just how good is it? Um, that's very true. 
On the other hand, we did have a couple of folks that were, you know, personal friends that had, you know, early on helped convince us, hey, we will personally invest a little bit. And so we knew we had just enough, right? I mean, if we really had to, we could, we could beg just enough to get another couple of weeks. And it was, it was fuel. So now looking back, yeah, for sure. For sure. I've, I go by this premise when somebody asks you your age or some famous actress and they asked her, do you ever lie about your age? And she said, no, because what year of my life would I pretend didn't happen? Every year has given me valuable experience. So I don't know that I was ready to do this until I did it. Yeah. But I do know that when we were ready, I called Kevin one morning and both Kevin and I would describe ourselves as very risk averse people. Seriously. So the fact that we quit our jobs in Q4 in the middle of the pandemic it probably doesn't look like risk averse behavior, but we would classify ourselves as very risk averse people. But I woke up one morning and I called him and I said, I, future Brian is losing money every day that the two of us don't try to just blow up. We, we've got to, we have to try to do this, but I don't know that either of us were ready until that day. So that prompted me with, with two more sub bonus questions. And, and I promise you, we're going to get to the story that I need to have the world tell, or have you tell the world. Um, if your startup failed, what would you be doing now? If you're so risk averse, what would you be doing now if your startup failed? Ah, see, that's the trick. <laughs> We've had this discussion, actually. So uh, myself and Kevin and two of our engineers, two lead engineers, Jim and Alex, we all started together. And they would also describe themselves as very risk averse. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's kind of funny, but it's about how you qualify and define risk. And sometimes, you know, you know, right now I know what our burn rate is. I know how much money we have in the bank. And even though we don't have revenue right now, like that, would, that would be terrifying, except in our business model that is completely appropriate right now, this doesn't feel risky. I know exactly how much money I have in the bank, right? Are there unforeseen things? Is there some padding? Absolutely. But we have a good plan and we are working it. That one year of runway or 18 months of runway that you're trying to hold as a startup is an incredible amount of job security. And you know, somebody asked me the other day, how many businesses do you know that could take no revenue for the next year and consider themselves very successful? That's the difference between a venture. There's the difference between taking your money and turn it into an asset that has this huge future value. So it doesn't feel risky when you really get your mind into what the business model is. So what if it fails? You have to ask yourself that question. Um, I go get another job or maybe start another one. It's gone pretty well so far. I mean, there's all kinds of unknowns right now. We're prepping for the next round of funding. It's uh, things are going so fast that there's still scary days. But if the whole thing fell down, we, we've talked about this. We might just try again <laughs> for our employees, right? I mean, these are people that I care about. These are people that I know, um, you know, without, you know, sort of HR, right? Like we have kids and families, right? It's not a group of teenagers in a garage with some lawn chairs making an app, right? And, and so these are career professionals. They're putting a lot on the line. And so we had to have a lot of talk about, well, how risky do we all really feel like this is? And what if it falls over? And the fact is, we've got as good a plan as we can come up with. We've had it vetted by as many people as we can find. 
uh, our investors are, well, our investors have the money to invest because they're savvy, right? It's not like they just gave us that money because I have a nice beard. We had to, we had to work, we had to work for that, convince them that this is a good plan. There's a reasonable financial, you know, so if it doesn't work, you do some root cause analysis, but ultimately everybody who's working here is producing cooler stuff than they would have gotten to do in almost any other place. We're really trying to break a new frontier. So if the company falls down and everybody needs to get new jobs, they're now more qualified. Nobody's going to hold that against anybody that it failed. Businesses fail, right? Lots of businesses failed when COVID happened that were really decent business models, right? The world sometimes just changes. So if the world changed for us, then that's a risk you take. But, you know, whole companies fold, whole divisions get sold off, spreadsheets get come down, and there's 500 names on the spreadsheet. That's a risk too, right? You can't see that one coming anymore. You do everything you can to prepare for it. You continue to ask your advisors for help. You continue to provide, you know, continue to look that year out. Are we, you know, do we think we see it? So it's a weird approach to risk, right? Like I think it's a, a mental and philosophical redefinition of what risky really is. And, you know, do you think that if the startup failed, you would still be employable? Well, probably. Right, it was, the, it was the expertise and sort of the confidence to start the thing that convinced us to start the thing. And I'm not gonna say that's true for everybody, but that's, I think, to some degree where our group of very risk averse individuals would tell you that this thing is, right? So that's why we don't feel like it's risky, if that makes sense. Did I, I don't know if I answered your question there, actually. You definitely did. And, and basically what I'm dragging out of this is even though you, felt you consider yourself risk averse and likely you were probably in the more traditional sense nine months ago ish but i'm assuming that your risk averse averse definition today even because you've been through all this stuff over the past nine months is now probably a little bit different than it was too i mean who you were nine months ago versus today is, is a very different person oh 100 percent. yeah 100 percent. no doubt no doubt so you brought it up you almost stole my thunder but i'm still going to ask the question because you did bring it up um this is my final question then we're just going to get into you but because you are the only person in the industry that I have seen with a better beard than mine, does being bald and beard bearded hold you back? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I might get myself in trouble for this one. Um, but uh, yes and no, I would say. Uh, I would say that the bald is pretty good and the beard, if if short enough and trimmed to be considered acceptable, right? Like then there's sort of various degrees of what your HR or your whoever will think is acceptable. <laughs> um, I think by the time the beard gets to where mine is, you sort of get into biker or ZZ top sort of territory. <laughs> In corporate America, it tends to not be popular. Uh, I'm, I'm not super muscular. I'd like to get back into the gym, but I'm still about six feet tall and a bald headed guy with this huge beard. And it more than once people have kind of like been intimidated. I'm like the nicest guy, right? But I look like this, you know, uh, I did, I won't name the company, but I was at a med tech firm. I was an employee and the front desk called up to IT to ask if there was a homeless person in the building <laughs> because I also wear this like kind of raggedy stocking cap with that. So now, all that said, like Fortune 500, like it's not the beard, not at all popular. 
kind of maybe intimidates people. I don't know. In startup world, though, um, I think it's a branding thing. And I think Amen. it's much more allowed. As the eccentric CTO, I'm going to at least claim that that's my excuse. I mean, my daughter at 12 years old was very upset because I trimmed my beard really, really short for a job interview. And she started to cry. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not joking. Started to cry. And she said, they're not hiring you because of your beard. They're hiring you because of what's inside your head. What does it matter? And kind of, you know, part of the benefit of being a startup is I get to set the dress code. And as long as there's no bugs in the beard, you can have it as long as you want. You'll be, you'll be good with us. So yeah, definitely pros and cons on uh, whether it helps or hinders. Well, I love the the bald and bearded synergy we have going on here. So I, I couldn't I couldn't help myself but ask that. But question. you get that. Sometimes you like you walk too quickly towards somebody and you see him like kind of shy back and because oh, yeah. you forget that you look like you look. Yeah, I get it. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. No, I sh- I mean I, I got mine done last time I got a trim was about two weeks ago. And and usually I, I go through this whole COVID thing. I, I let it go for like two, three months and it just it never gets like yours. I wish, but I got someone yanking on me saying that I can't, but <laughs> anyway, um, I love when it gets a little bit longer and I love your beard. So anyway, I had to bring it up. I, so I, I do ride a great big Harley. And um, so I've got pictures of the beard in like the ponytail with them. Oh. And when I'm, when it's like that and the leather, but the mustache is out and I braid it and then the boots and everything and people get out of your way. It's hilarious how intimidating it looks apparently like because you look like a viking um (laughs) my wife thinks it's hilarious she's watch she's giggling as i'm walking through places and people are like i'm telling you if you haven't seen the show vikings or you haven't heard of it yet i mean you have to i'm assuming you haven't just by that reaction you have to google vikings it's a whole series it's absolutely incredible and there is a character named floki f-l-o-k-i and take this however you want I love you anyway, but you look identical to Floki, identical, and you're my Viking. So I appreciate you being on MedTech Money. Um, while you're Googling that, so I wanted to actually be serious and kick this off formally. And I wanted to know who Brian Green is. Um, and I just want to know about where you came from all professionally or whatever you want to share all the way up until that moment in time where whether you decided to resign or send an email or talk to Kevin and you were like, we're starting this company. And then I want to hear that story and you can make it as short as long as you want, but I want to really grab out of it. Why all of a sudden entrepreneurial finish lines met you after that career that you had before. And and you finally crossed over that line and now then jump into the nine month journey that you've been on and, and take that in two parts. And I'll start peppering you with questions along the way. It's a really big question. I will, uh, if I get off track, let me know. Uh, so I'll start at the beginning ish professionally. Um, I started my professional career at Striker, a little tiny division that was part of an acquisition. Uh, fresh out of undergrad in uh, 2003. So, you know, just post.com crush bubble. Uh, I didn't have any internships. I had no practical experience. It was like the worst possible time to try to get a job as a software engineer. So, you know, that's what I was going after. Because uh, I was in love with computers. I'd figured out that writing code, could, I could control them. Sounds kind of naive. 
but it was felt very powerful, uh, you know, to, to write software. I got a very tiny taste of it. And um, so that's what I'm going to go do. Uh, I mean, I'll be honest, I feel like maybe fundraising, like maybe I learned how to do it trying to get my first job at Stryker because I'm coming out of a like mid-range state school in the middle of a cornfield in Illinois. It was a dot-com depression. There's no jobs. And um, I think I dropped 500 resumes at job fairs and ended up getting my job at Stryker because I crashed a job fair at another state school. Um, so we, we literally got, me and my buddy got online, got all the dates of all the job fairs for every school with like a 300 mile radius and then tag team and we would crash every one of them. And, and that's how I got my job at Stryker. Um, man, it takes to work to get what you want and, awesome. and I, you need to eat. So um, got in, loved writing code. I mean, I guess I was okay at it. Um, Stryker's a great place to work. Lots of good things to say. My first manager there is named Jeff Simone. I would give a shout out to Jeff Simone. He's an amazing manager, an amazing leader, taught me a ton of stuff. Um, formational for me in my career about what you know should be expected of somebody. Um, it's a little unconventional sometimes. So sometimes what he expected of me, other people later didn't. Um, Jeff was a big ask forgiveness, not permission kind of guy. He, uh, he taught me, I went in one time to ask him for his guidance. I'm going to ask him this very technical question. Do I, should I do option A or B? And I explained it to him. Now I knew that the right answer was B, right? But I felt like, you know, I should ask him because he's the boss. And so I explained it all to him and he looks at his watch and says, that's a kind of a while, which one is the right answer? I'm like, well, B probably is what you should do if I were you. And he's like, okay, but that's the thing. I'm paying you because you know a lot more about this than I do, right? Yeah, I suppose. He's like, okay, if you made the wrong decision here, do you think I'd fire you? Well, probably not over something like this. He's like, okay, then you can let me know when you make this kind of decision. That's your job. Be smart, make things better. Tell me if you need my help. It was foundational for me, like the freedom that that gave me. I moved to another division, got a promotion, moved into some other software engineering stuff. Um, you know, had a wonderful personal life too. Was married, had a baby and um, needed to move home. Telecommuting wasn't an option at that time and um, family's important. So I resigned my position, ended up taking a consulting gig. I was employee number eight at a little consulting company. Um, and that's where I started doing, like trying to pretend to do recruiting. So I was a recruiter for a while. I wrote job descriptions on monster.com and tracked response rates, and I scanned resumes, and I set up phone interviews, and I built this shitty little application to track what questions we'd asked which interviewees and how they, because we were trying to like make it a better process because we we're trying to grow. Um, it was a neat experience. Um, that's actually also where I hired Jim Major, who's one of the principals at our company. Um, so I met Jim that early in maybe 15 years ago, I guess, in my career. Um, left that job, went to another consulting job, <laughs> And, um, and then went back to Stryker. Um, I went back originally as a contractor. So I got a phone call. They said, hey, you know, we have this problem we'd really like to solve. And we think maybe a guy like you could work on it in part-time. And it was my introduction to customer master data management, which is a very esoteric thing that people think only big enterprises need, but turns out to be fundamental to, I think, even the tiniest companies. So uh, I went back on a contracting gig and then I got hired in full-time into regulatory. So I was doing complaint management, 
And then I finally like, and I would kind of gotten bitten by the analytics bug already. And so then I got to start my first team and I'll never forget. Um, I posted about this on LinkedIn, but I went to my one-on-one with my boss, uh, Bob, who again, brilliant leader, great guy. I've shouted out to him more than once on LinkedIn. Um, he roll, slides his job description across the desk as business intelligence manager. And so I pick it up and I read it. And I remember looking at him and saying, yeah, I've been going nuts about you need to go hire one of these. Like when, go get one. And he just looks at me, he's like, are you thick? Like, is this is, do you want, do you, you want this job? I'm offering you that. I'm like, oh, right. Let me read that again then. And I read it. I was like, there's like half the stuff on here. I don't actually know how to do. He says, but you've been ranting on about those are the things that should be done. So now it's your job to figure out how to do. Oh, okay. And it, it, I had that, you know, I had that experience a couple more times in my career. So uh, I got to hire people as my first management experience um, and, and I really enjoyed it. So I got to, you know, build a little BI team there. Um, just as a side note. What does BI I'm, mean? What's BI? Uh, sorry, a business intelligence team. Got it. So very straight up old school uh, data warehousing, you know, pulling, operating data from multiple divisions into a central data warehouse. It was pretty cool for the time. It really was. I was, I was proud of it. Um, learned stuff to do and not to do. Hopefully tried to start becoming a good manager. It's a, I think it's its own skill set. And it was like any technical person transitioning into people management. It had you know some challenges. Um, I apologize to those guys more than once about how some of those things went in retrospect. Um, but then I got this sort of life-changing phone call, actually about 10 years ago. Um, I got a phone call from a good friend of mine and he said, he said some words that you should be wary of. I learned this later. He said, I'd like to talk to you about an opportunity, <laughs> which sometimes can be amazing, but yeah, it might, you know, so it was a 90 day temporary assignment that lasted about three years. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was one of those. And it really, I credit it with changing the course of my career. And, and really changing the course of my thinking. I won't go deeply into the kind of technology and in infrastructure parts of it, but it, it let me see things uh, uh, at a systems architecture level, integration level, that was very new for me, it was very exciting. Um, I had read a book about building like large scale message driven middleware. And um, we got into this project about 60 days and I went to the project lead and I said, I think we should do this. And they said, you know, a, a bunch of people said that it would not work at all. There was a fairly large lobby of folks actually that told me to my face quite politely that this was a dumb idea. Um, a, a couple of major consulting companies said that it probably couldn't get done on the timeline that we wanted to get it done on. But I mean, I had read a book on the subject. It seemed like a very good book. It seemed very straightforward. I talked to a couple other folks. They said, yeah, we think we can pull it. What was this book? Um, it's actually by a guy named Gregor Hopi. He's uh, uh, it was Patterns of Enterprise laying around here. Patterns of Enterprise Architecture Integration. There's a number of it's a very technical thing, but it's about asynchronous message-driven integration between like large distributed systems, and it it turned out to be the linchpin in this huge program, and and it was very exciting. Got to build a team, got to build business process. I think for the first time. So rather than just let's build a technology team, let's really kind of what's the SDLC look like for this? How does it integrate with the quality management system? It was just a bigger, it's a much bigger role in, in terms of a, a big solution like that. It was a great deal of fun. Um, Move from that into enterprise architecture. By the way, that's where I met uh, Kevin Durr, my partner. 
my, my business partner is the CEO of HMG Labs. I probably should introduce our company. And you we're going to get there. We're going to get <laughs> yeah, there. You can get but back there. Did you meet Kevin at Stryker? Are we still at yeah. Stryker? Okay. Yeah. So I met Kevin at Stryker. Um, I was rolling off of the middleware team and he was taking it over and, and folding it into a couple other things that he was taking over. And then I went over in this direction to, to do another team, um, which is where I hired Alex. So of the four of us that uh, originally formed HMD Labs, that covers Kevin, Jim, and Alex. So I met Alex, um, I guess it's been seven years ago, it was about when that was, the first time I hired him into Striker onto the enterprise architecture team. And what a neat and, and lovely and powerful and frustrating experience that can be. Um, because, and, and it took me, I think, a long time to get to this point, but there's a number of these interesting disciplines and frameworks that their purpose is to systematize performance, right? Like that's why you put any of these frameworks or systems in place. And so enterprise architecture, you know, kind of starts with this premise that you can put a big enough system in place to make these huge decisions. And how do you frame those and how you sell those to leaders who are empowered, you know, their job is to make those decisions without that system in place, right? I, I, it was challenging. I learned all this cool stuff. I saw all these neat patterns um, and I learned a lot more about the PL like intradivisionally and what was really driving things. It was fascinating. Um, but I also at that point hadn't written code in a while. And, and so I joined the SAP program and I did master data work for that for eight or nine months. Uh, and I was just, I was just itching to start over again. I look back at my career now, it's taken me a while, but I look back at my career now and it's characterized by starting over and over with these teams. Go learn BI, go learn complaint management, go learn this, go learn middleware, go, go learn enterprise. So I really needed to get my hands dirty and I really wanted to get back into the data and analytics space at a much, much larger scale. Um, so Kevin had left Stryker and he had headed to a little startup called Oris Robotics. And um, he was there for a, a short span of time and he called me and he said, hey, you know, um, some cool stuff going on over here. Maybe we should talk. And, and it, it's it, it really candidly, it started with him calling me to say, there, I'm being told maybe I should go hire someone that looks like this, but I don't think that that's right. But I'm, I'm just interested in your feedback. And my feedback was, oh, you're there. Basically, what I told him was, your boss is wrong. You should hire me instead. <laughs> I'm not like, really, I'm not joking. In like the first 10 minutes of the conversation, I was like, you have to go tell your boss and some other people there that, that you should hire me and that it'll all work out. And he was like, okay, that's uh, it's going to be a hard sell. We're going to have to work through that. But, you know, four and a half years ago, I guess, um, I ended up out there and um, was the, so he had started the data platform team um, and I showed up as technical hands on the ground. And so the, he and I built that team um, through the, then we were acquired by J&J. Um, and that was really awesome. It was cool to see what the two firms were able to bring together um, and continue to see like the merging of those resources. Uh, but and you moved out to the Bay? No, no. Okay. So, so yeah, were... that's, that's the other thing. I, when I left Stryker and moved to the Midwest, I've never left. Okay. I've been a telecommuter part-time since I guess 2005. Oh, so this whole pandemic work from home thing really hasn't totally altered your life. No, as a matter of fact, Jim, 
uh, you, you hear me talk about Jim, you hear me talk about Alex. I've never worked in the same building with either of them. I've known Jim for 15 years. I think I've hired him five times now. <laughs> we almost never are in the same physical place. Like once in a while, we'd be traveling to the same place. We'd see each other for a day or two, but I've never, yeah, I've never physically been in the building with either one of them. I've never worked in the same office as Kevin. He was in New Jersey um, and I was in my house. Well, when I wasn't in Ireland or wherever I was. So, and that really became the thing for me that was with the telecommuting was no matter what office I go to, I'm going to spend 25 or 40% of my time flying to a different one. Yeah. So I'm going to spend that much time flying. I'm going to pick where I want to live. And anyway, so yeah, a bit of a deviation there, but yeah, we are hundred percent remote right now. Although we are looking at physical office space. Okay. Which, you know, I have to, so the, the, I think it was the head of HR, maybe of General Motors recently, um, released their new uh, work policy. It's brilliant. It says work appropriately. Um, <laughs> that, that's it, period. Work appropriately. Yeah, their dress code is dress appropriately. <laughs> okay. Right. Like, apparently they got rid of hundreds of pages of procedures and replaced it with dress appropriately. End of story. Uh, and it's worked very well. Like it was met with a good response, right? So we are we are a, a work appropriately. And we do recognize that as we scale, um, there are certain roles and there's a lot of reasons why we're going to want a physical office. We're going to sco scope out a city. Uh, actually, later this summer, we're going to do our first company offsite. Um, everybody's vaccinated now. And um, so we are going to finally get the whole team. It'll be nine months since we started or 10 months by then. But we are going to get the entire team together, barring one person, and um, spend three days together planning, team building, you know, really nailing down what's the company operating principles, you know, doing that core culture building. Because we recognize you, you do want to do that in person. Of course. Um, but, but I am going to take that yeah. power away from you. I'm going to take that power away because you gave it to me earlier on. I'm going to bring you back on track where the story was you had Sorry. just acquired by Johnson & Johnson when you were from yeah, Oris. Yeah. And I want to finish that because then we're going to get into the juice. Yeah, no, edit back and you can cut out a bunch of my work from home ranty shit. No, I love um, it. I, uh, so um, Oris, uh, Oris was a great time. And I think Oris, I mean, let's, let's step back to that because joining Oris was the beginning of retuning my understanding to what a venture capital backed business looks like versus a well-established financially amazing company, right? So I was very used to Stryker very used to other companies. You know, you have an annual budget, you ask for a headcount and fight for that. And, you know, you have annual goals and all this stuff. And so Kevin says, hey, come join me at this startup. And I said, well, isn't that really risky? It was the very first thing I said, isn't that a crazy idea to go join some California startup, right? Like, remember, I live in the middle of Illinois in a cornfield. This seems like a crazy idea, right? And so we started talking about well, what's the risk. And, and so I finally figured out, I had to ask him the one question, which was, well, how much money do you have? Because you're not selling anything. Like I couldn't wrap my brain around how they were going to hire me and pay me. And they were paying all these other people. They had this big fancy office, but they didn't have like an approved device. I really, you talk about demystifying Ventec Capital. It made no sense at all to me. And so I flew out there and, and what they told me was like, oh, we have like a year of money in the bank and we're doing some fundraising right now. Don't worry. What do you mean you're doing fundraising? I remember asking them, they were like, 
at some point we'll explain it to you, but we're doing fundraising. We have good confidence and that's kind of all we can say. Okay, I, I trust Kevin a great deal, a great deal. We've gotten to know each other at Stryker pretty well. Um, we really see a lot of the world the same way. We shared a lot of common friends there. Um, I got to meet his boss, Richard. We trusted the guy, you know, almost immediately. All right, you guys say this is a thing. I'm gonna, let's go. Um, it was scary. Uh, I had four children at the time. God. No, sorry, I had three children at the time. Um, and, and so, you know, going to join a startup seems, yeah. Oh, by the way, I was their first remote employee and they were mad about it and they told me about it. Uh, so yeah, it was starting was super fun. Uh, <laughs> Risky, nervous, anxious. How do I provide for my family? Everything going through your head. All at the same time, why not? Um, but I met some guys. So I met Josh Defonso. Um, who at the time was running, I think, strategic marketing. Um, he ended up being the, you know, the, the president, the CEO, you know, led us through that acquisition. He was an awesome, he's an inspirational guy. And Josh interviewed me, right? And I mean, it was really impactful because it was this spirit that I, 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 I really liked. It was that little tiny company that he said, I'm really, I'm only interested in people that punch way above weight. I said, really? And he's like, yeah, is that you? He's like, I don't, I'm not technical. I don't know what you do. I'm not even sure why I'm interviewing you, but I got to know, you know, there's some huge competitors out there and they're going to come and try to eat you and us. So you tell me what you are going to do about it. And I've never been asked a question like that in any interview before. How is what you personally are going to do, right? Protect this area, deliver huge value for us in this one specific, that's it's playing on a team, but it's a, it's a different kind of game. And it was inspiring, right? Gave my notice and joined. Couldn't, I really, the technology was amazing. The people were, you talk about the question you asked at the beginning, do you need money and people? And it was both of those things. They were very well funded, right? So they did actually get some more funding later. Um, we all continued to have jobs. We were acquired by Johnson & Johnson, so we'll get to that. But it was my beginning into folks who were trying to build something like truly outrageous, right? I remember going in for the interview and it was far before any of the product releases and seeing the prototypes and the vision that they had at the time. It's, it's, uh, it's addictive. It's very attractive. And so, yeah, joined, built up the data team. We went from Kevin and myself to, I think, 14. I think we were at a dozen or 13 when uh, Johnson & Johnson acquired us. Nice. Um, continued to grow uh, a little bit after that. And then it was, um, it was last fall, right? So, and maybe it was the pandemic. So hold on, let me just back up and give some timelines with it. So what month and year did you join Oris? What month and year were you acquired? And then what month and year did you decide to leave that and go jump off into the universe? I mean, you don't have to be that specific. So no, I, I joined Oris what, four and a half years ago because I was right at about, I was right at four years when I left. So I joined Oris in, I think, November of 17, 16, 16, 17. Um, the acquisition was about two and a half years later. I'd have to go, I'm serious, I'm sorry. I should, oh. I should have been prepared for that. Um, 
give me five minutes at the end of this, ask me again, and we'll record it. And it'll sound like I know what the hell I'm talking about because <laughs> yeah, I probably should know those dates like off the top of my head. Um, it's all relative time. So the acquisition, J&J's acquisition was about two years ago from right now. It was a spring. It was just, actually, no, they announced it just before the end of Q1. So they announced it pretty early in the year. And then the acquisition closed, I believe, right at the end of Q1. And I know that it was then, and it was uh, exactly two years ago, because a week after the acquisition closed, my fifth child was born. Wow. Congratulations. And, um, and it made me eligible for Johnson & Johnson's amazing paternity benefits, which are like above and beyond uh, uh, what anybody else I've found offers in the industry. I think so, you so you decided to leave that and go join and open up a startup? Yeah, well, I mean, I, we, I, so, so I was at J&J for what, 18 months post-acquisition. It was a good time, you know, watching the product stabilize, watching them merge those organizations. But I think maybe part of it was I'd caught the bug, right? Like I had left Striker, I'd left that stability, I'd gone to this little startup, it's really exciting. Once you do a startup, people who are recruiting for other startups start ringing you off the hook, right? Again, I feel like I'm really, really risk averse, but I think that they recognize the crazy. And so they start saying, hey, we got a startup over here. You want to come, right? There's 12 people. And ah, I mean, at some point, I, I have a pretty good idea of what I'm good at and a pretty good idea of what I'm not good at. And, and I've never had the confidence to start my own venture completely because there are some things that I'm not good enough at. And it's always really held me back and it scared me. And, and I learned early in my career, actually, um, that some of the best leaders and some of the best people who have moved things forward um, had some substantial weaknesses or they only had a part of the puzzle. And so they got with a strong partner. And so I've been able to successfully partner throughout my career kind of over and over. And you can tell what roles I've got a good partner and I'm really, I mean, we're just home running it. And um, Kevin and I knew each other at Striker for a number of years. We became friends, we respected each other. He took over a team that I built. So he knew my work, he knew, you know, not on, on the people side and the technology side, but working together with him at Oris day in and day out, you know, a couple thousand miles apart, but I don't care. We talked almost every day, right? He's used to managing remote teams as well. So he was in New Jersey and managed teams all over the planet for most of his career. And so it's very natural for us. And he is a, an amazing partner. We complement each other incredibly well. And so over time, before J&J acquired us more than once, we had talked about, man, we should just go do our own thing. I mean, guys spitball about this kind of thing. Maybe some people don't, but we were starting to get to, I don't know, the age or the experience or the, the whatever it is man, we really could, maybe the, maybe the two of us, we teamed up, we could start our own thing, right? Um, Cause he's on the business side of things and he's legal and he's a security genius. Like he's, but you know, you want the technical half and I'm the technical part, right? And I don't have these other things. So, you know, as we got to working together, it's like, well, this is, this works really well, this magic that we have. We've hired a bunch of people, we've grown this team, we've done something pretty excellent. People want us to come work with them. He was getting aggressively recruited, right? He's a, he's a great guy. Well, maybe now is the time then, right? And we really did have a legitimate conversation about how startups that are remote are often viewed kind of unfavorably, 
and that COVID uh, let us justify why we would be remote for a while until we had the capital to actually put an office down and that it would allow us to run with talent that we knew worked really, really well in that scenario. Um, and I think, you know, when it came to getting our, our angel funding, um, you hate to say, but maybe the overhead of that, like everybody's working from home, everybody's kind of making do, um, it explained the situation and it helped a lot. Um, for us, it was, you know, kind of an advantage. It was a known, you know, known quantity, known people. We know how to, culture is, culture, I read that great article actually that you posted a little while back that talks about how culture is what you assume the other people that you work with will do, even if you're not paying attention and you don't ask them about it. Culture is this unstated in between, right? And so with these people and our beliefs, and we've solved a bunch of hard problems. And you have this kind of imposter syndrome about, well, can I solve a big one, like a really big, like before we're going to quit our job. Remember by now I have five children, right? And so if I'm going to quit my job and, and we're going to go start a startup, it better be a big idea. And do we think it's a good one? And so we started to pressure test it kind of back and forth. And um, ultimately a, a couple of people uh, who, who we knew through, through our career, you know, we kind of asked them for feedback. And, and this is, you know, this goes to your earlier question about if you knew now what you know then. Uh, so I made our original pitch deck based on a text message from Josh. Right. So we had two people. I won't tell you which two people of our investor pool, but we had two people who had each said, if you and Kevin just quit your job and make a run at it, we'll each give you a hundred thousand dollars. Each to make two hundred thousand. Make two hundred thousand. Okay. And our thought was like, well, we can't go very far with that. And I mean, you can, but we got a pretty big thing we want to build, right? And we thought, well, that seems pretty good. Maybe, I mean, can we ask other people from like, isn't that what you're supposed to do? That's venture capitalism, right? Like, and so we said, we're going to do it. We're going to quit. We're going to make startup. You know, we're nine months into the world is on lockdown, right? So it's Q4. But did that $200,000 commitment, did that enable you to set that trigger and say, at least if we're going to go do this idea that we've been talking about, finally, we have some backing? That was a huge part of it having two people who we think have a better insight into the industry than we do, frankly, right? Experienced with startups, having them say, we would back you like this was a huge push for weight. I mean, I remember asking the guy like, why? So right? you're still at J&J. Yeah, we're still at J&J and we have people telling us, we'll give you $200,000 if you would just quit your jobs and form a company, the two of you, just to make it happen. So still employed, have an idea that sounds like pretty much a fireside chat. There's nothing really legitimate. There's nothing incorporated. You have a partner that you would start it with. You have potential people who would join your company that know that you know that would work well. You have five kids and you have two guys saying they'll give you a hundred grand a piece to make 200. You know nothing about raising capital. You don't even know where to start, let alone having ever read a book about raising capital and you just do it. Well, you say I knew nothing about raising capital, but remember now I had gotten a text message that described the essential elements of a pitch deck. That's not enough. Right. That was yeah. a silver bullet. <laughs> yeah. I hope that 
in this is that whole in retrospect you did what right, right? like risk averse but you don't know what you don't know so yeah you assess the situation correctly uh q4 pandemic now we did talk about it and what kevin and i decided so again we'll go back to your previous question what if the thing falls over and you hear all these scary statistics about the percentage of this and that that's going to fail and you can slice it by industry and venture capital is, uh, there's enough of it flowing and it's risky enough that there's really good money and just trying to do the meta analysis to help make the decisions better is a great industry and just analyzing the horses and the jockeys on the track. But at the end of the day, it's horses and jockeys on the track, right? And sometimes you just pick a winner, even though he came out a little late. So our theory was, if we can quit our jobs with all this headwind, if we can start a company from this little in Q4, right, with all this other stuff going on, doesn't that mean we're going to probably be better? Like, if we shouldn't we be able to get through that? Right? Like, we're going to wait for it to be safe? Yeah. When is safe? <laughs> right? You got two guys, right? Like, that's... And it started to get really hard because I remember, I remember trying to decide if, and, and you know this, every big company that pays annual bonuses, you can watch the little attrition bump in January, right? Because you got to be employed through the end of the year to get your money, right? You're a recruiter, you know this. Oh, yes. Okay. Remember, I quit my job in October. <laughs> Good for you, man. In the pandemic. Right. Staring at a bonus that's a sure thing. <laughs> and so you ask yourself, well, shouldn't I stick around for a few months to get that money? I mean, that's like a no-brainer. Actually, free money. It's a nice chunk, right? Yeah. But no. No, my days are way more valuable than that to start this thing now. If you think about what your time should be like as the CTO of this company four years from now, then I'm losing money every time I start. That, that, that bonus is, I was lost money anyway. Go get the real. And to be fair, we started our round. We started raising. We met our lead investor after we had already quit. I don't know what we would have done without this guy, right? Um, I, I will always be really, really thankful to him. And I call him for advice routinely, like more than just the monthly investor update. Um, we had a signed term sheet with him on my birthday, December 15th. But did you even know what a term sheet was last October when you and J&J? &J? My, my, my whole thing that I want to demystify no, here is... Let me, let me explain to you the most irritating moment in this whole process. And that was when me and Kevin didn't take a paycheck and we had people telling us we will wire you money but we didn't have a term sheet in place and we didn't have this other stuff and we like couldn't figure out a good legal way to take their money because there's no contract to sign i so can't just do? let you give me piles of cash and put it in my bank account what that's did you not do? how this works then how does it work how did you figure out how it worked what did you do? okay so you left j and j you're out in the world and then like where do you even begin? We got really good advice. I, again, I said that I kind of know, I kind of know what I'm good at. And occasionally I take a decent guess on what I'm not good at. And what every founder needs to do is find really, really good lawyers, more than one who is really, really good at this. And so we got- Good at what? Good at what? 
Yeah, that's, I was just going to go there. I said lawyers, plurals. Um, so we got recommended a really good securities lawyer. His specialty is doing all the paperwork and term sheets. And he taught us a ton of stuff, right? He was very helpful, but his whole specialty is this. It's taking early stage founders like us who need serious handholding, who need what's a term sheet and making sure that all the T's are crossed and all the I's are dotted. Hey guys, you should use Carta. Okay. Like, you know, I'm a technologist, I'm into SASs. That makes sense. It's securities law. It seems like it's pretty important. So, you know, my attorney who does the security stuff is in Carta. Okay, great. Um, we have somebody, uh, we have a retainer for somebody who provides some occasional general counsel sort of work. So general lawyer questions, I know who I'm gonna ask before we do something silly. Cause you should always ask your lawyer before you make like big decisions, even medium decisions sometimes. Candidly, you'd be shocked how many things you should potentially ask your lawyer about. It doesn't mean you'll always take their advice. Um, we have a third lawyer that does like tax and finance based stuff separate from the security, right? Cause that's not securities law. It's just sort of what's your tax accounting and all this other stuff. And, and going back to last October, it's still at J&J, besides anything having to do personally, have you even ever had to deal with lawyers that you had to contract on your own professionally? Um, other than like in-house corporate counsel, no. Right. So you're talking about white sheet of paper, not knowing jack about jack and having to figure out that you need more than one lawyer and which type of different lawyer you need and everything. We got really good advice. Again, awesome. again. We, I mean, we started it blind, but the guy who still provides really good general counsel for us, he said, hey, you have to stand up. Uh, we use Agiloft for contract management. Day one, you have to. Have, and I remember arguing with him. We're a little startup. How many contracts are we going to have? We don't need, we could do that in a year from now. He's like, I will not talk to you. Any, like he was really clear about how to keep things in order from day one. And he was really clear about, I know a guy, he's a securities lawyer. I need you to talk to him. I need you to understand the value proposition there because this gentleman is also an investor of ours. So remember so I said it, there were two, two people that said they'd give us hundred K each, but before they gave it to us, there was some fairly good advice that was given. And I think there was some pressure testing about whether we listened or not because they did eventually give us that money, right? They did eventually invest. But in the meantime, we were listening to their advice. We were asking them, what should we, you know, we've not started up a company. There's tons of minutia that you have to be, I couldn't find a textbook. Maybe there is one. So the two biggest bullet points, jumping from a big corporate scene to starting a company, network and advice, number one. So people, people to give you counsel and not necessarily a lawyer, but people to steer you that way, which then leads to lawyers. So that network. Yep. Um, and then lawyers, like you said. So network and lawyers are two really big things. So you have things a little bit in, organized and in place at this point. You have good counsel, you have good advice, you have a couple hundred grand, you have an idea, you've resigned, you have a partner. Where does the rest of the money come from? And what do you do next? Yeah, um, well, and that was funny, right? Because you know we resigned and we had two people who told us they would give us some money, but then as we got very, and this is it's a little like a freight train, right? Like it gets in the tracks and then you go, ah, we're pretty committed here. But what we really got down to was, well, that money is contingent on a minimum raise. So what's the dead minimum that you guys would need to live for a year? And what we came up with was 800,000, right? So then it became, okay, well, we'll give you this money if you can find another $600,000. After you resigned, they told you well, this. It was, 
around that time. Blurry-ish, right? Again, <laughs> money that is promised to you is not real until it is actually in your bank account. I don't care right. when they tell you the information. Good intentions are good intentions, but the larger the amount of money, people change their mind. They get whimsical. Like, no, I'm just I'm just imagining in my head you and yeah. Kevin popping a bottle of champagne, being like, "Okay, we got a couple guys behind us that are going to give us a hundred grand each. We got an idea. Let's quit." Basically, but then the two hundred grand wasn't in the bank yet because then you found out that you had to go raise another six hundred. It was pretty. I mean, yeah, but I think we decided by then because they told us we're confident that you can raise this money, and I'll tell you. Again, we did not know our lead investor when we quit. We literally like just networked. And, and so that was probably the biggest like weird experience for me was how do you go? So, so we set some fairly uh, severe criteria on who we want our early investors to be. Um, we only wanted individuals. So no institutional money. Um, and, and we have fairly strict criteria on that because there's, you know, like I said earlier, we kind of were talking, there's angel investors, but a lot of the angel investors don't fit like we, okay. I'll just tell you about our naivete. We quit our jobs being told that there were angel investors who would help fund companies like ours. And we we're like, Hey, that sounds awesome. Cause we're pretty savvy. We feel like we got a good story to tell. We'll make a pitch deck. I got a text about how to make a pitch deck. But what we quickly figured out was that most of the angel investors are in these like super sophisticated syndicates that have all these crazy rules and lots of competition and tons of hurdles to jump over and really advanced criteria. And then you get a $25,000 check. And what we had done is we put together, remember 800,000 is the minimum for Kevin and myself and two other people to last one year, but that's the minimum. I don't want to try to build the company on the dead minimum. So we said 2 million is the target. We talked to several people and they said, seems like a reasonable target. And put hindsight now, yeah. hindsight now after raising money, do you realize that $2 million for a seed round of funding is quite a large seed round? Uh, one of our existing investors, when I pitched to him, I love this guy. I'm actually setting, trying to set some time, get more of his advice. But he did say to me on the Zoom, looking me straight in the eye, he says, hey, guys, I'm in. This is brilliant. I know you guys. This, yeah, I love it. And I said, great. And he said, I'm in for 25 grand. Um, and I said, well, you know, we set a $100,000 minimum on the round per investor. I didn't know that that's not what normal people do. We just thought that sounded like, because like, here's the thing. I want $2 million. That means I got to find 20 people at 100K each. 20 seems like a lot to find, right? If you let them put in $5 each, man, we're going to be on the road forever. We got a company to build. So $100,000 each, serious investors. Again, totally naive way, but that's how we went at it. It's an easy criteria to set. He has a lot of experience in startups. And very quickly, he looked me in the eye and he said, who the fuck is writing a pre-revenue seed stage company, $100,000 checks? Just <laughs> the two of you in this PowerPoint? And I said, if you want to see who's on the list, it costs you hundred grand, you get on the cap table. All right, poker player. Because it turns out by then we had like a million six in the bank. And I, he's like, I want to know who these other idiots are. So I, again, would I suggest that? I don't know, but I tell you what, it certainly qualified who was serious and who wasn't because we told people before we signed an NDA and pitched to them, we told, I don't know how we didn't tell him. We told there was a hundred thousand dollar minimum. We'll come. We think it's a great opportunity. 
but we put together a budget. It's, you know, me and Kevin and two, you know, amazing engineers and what we had done enough studying by then. So we quit our jobs thinking we got to find 800 grand, but quickly you figure out that just a tiny little staff and just a year is you can get to an MVP, but it's sort of your dream. Your, your, your minimum might be real minimum, right? Like what's the real MVP that you want to get? What's the real life cycle you want? How many, how long does this money really need to last? Well, we'd done some reading by then. So we quit our jobs. We thought we should start really reading up on raising money. And they said that the average time between rounds is 12 to 24 months, target 18. Okay, well, what do we need to run good for 18 months? We need 2 million. Okay, like Kevin and I have started teams and built things that you can, you sort of shoot shirt size it and here's how many people and here's how much they cost and here's what we can get done each quarter. Here's when we're gonna do this kind of thing, right? You paint a pretty decent picture. You two, So maybe 2 million is a lot but it seems pretty on point for what we wanted to get done in that time frame. We have a good story to tell about why we wanted that amount of money and why we we're going to spend it over that span of time. What we hoped we could get out of it. And, you know, in retrospect, seems like the most important thing to a venture capitalist. When you talk about the step function of valuations, I'm putting this much money in, what milestones come back? Can we agree on what those milestones are going to be worth? Right, very, very, much more straightforward when you started to think about it that way. So we said 2 million, I, again, it, I suppose it's a lot relative to other, I, I don't know, because there's, I've seen way bigger ones, I've seen way smaller ones. What was your- No other experience other than to say like we, now, okay, let me tell you the truth. I, I will tell you the goddamn truth and you don't have to cut this part. This was real new for us. We're used to begging bullshit budgets in corporate environments. And so when we had 900,000 in the bank, we felt like kings, right? We just missed a paycheck. We started closing December 15, my birthday, pretty awesome. Days before Christmas, right? Like we're gonna roll into the holidays. We're gonna, and we're telling our, you know, me and Kevin and the two guys who work for us like, we're going to be out of money in January and we don't get a term sheet signed and we start getting deposits. So December 15, the first money comes in. We got to like 900K, man, we did it. I don't think I've ever felt like so successful in my life. Don't, you know, I will walk through every step of it if you want it. And Kevin says, okay, so let's get, you know, let's get moving. I'm like, yeah, let's go. No, no. Why would I stop at the minimum? Because what we said in our round was from the moment we, we did a rolling close, we did a 90-day rolling close. Again, kind of found some inspiration out there. Seemed very straightforward. We really needed money now, right? Like we needed money to eat. So we wanted to close with the initial term sheet with the lead. And then again, very straightforward. Everyone has to follow on with the lead's terms. There were no individual terms behind what the lead said. They're fair. They're very straightforward. Receipt company. Pretty easy to get on the bus. While you're talking so, about the story, I, I'm not cutting you, cutting you off. I want you to continue. But when you were raising this round, did you decide and did you even know at this point, straight equity, a note, convertible note, a safe? What was it? We, yeah, that's a good question. Again, we quit our jobs and then we read some things and thought, oof, that was weird. So we didn't get the difference between the different kinds of fundraising. Uh I would assume that almost everyone naively would believe the same thing we believed, 
which is you get investment and you sell a percentage of the company as shares full stop. Very straightforward. Apparently there's lots of other funding mechanisms out there. There's non-dilutive funding that we've looked after. There's these angel syndicates, which are, you know, maybe they're going to give you straight funding and equity, but often it's a convertible. So then you get to the accelerators and the safe and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all of them, all of them had enough. We, we didn't know. So short answer, we did not know any of those variables exist. We assumed the only way this worked was straight equity. So on that point, You've been involved in, and we've had, you and I have had these specific conversations on our clubhouse discussions with other venture capitalists and entrepreneurs and angels. And we've, we've thrown this idea around knowing that, and also we've heard from investors, you and I on the same discussion that keep it as clean as you possibly can as early as possible, because it could only mess things up down the road. So you did straight equity, not knowing that it was really the cleanest. I mean, I, you knew we, that there was other modalities out there, but hindsight, going back to my other question that I asked earlier to this point, now knowing that you gave straight equity on your original round, knowing that safes and convertible notes exist and non-dilutive funding exist, would you still give straight equity again or would you do a different style of raise? No, nah, I'd probably do it the same way again. Okay, why? Super straightforward. Well, <laughs> maybe not, right? Like maybe the next startup will have some different idea. I don't... I, I don't, I don't know. I don't see anything past what I want to do in this company right now. Like I've got some years to do here, right? Like we're just getting started. So I don't know what happens next. Um, what I do know though, is, you know, as we've looked back at it, we looked at safes and <laughs> this is me and my partner, right? Talking about it. We're like, we're Googling this shit and you're reading the articles and what we, I mean, we called our lawyer and we said, wait a minute. So somebody's going to give us some money, but it's not a part of our company. It's a debt, but we don't have to pay it back for a while. And later it might be equity, but we don't know how much. So I might be selling you 10% and I might be selling you 18% and there's a cap and there's a this and there's a timeline and a whatever. This is super confusing to me already. I want to sell X percentage of my company, I need to raise Y capital. That's what this looks like. Create a share pool, set a minimum, go tell people, this is the idea. This is how I'm going to turn your money into more money. And so I get that there's other models, but we wanted to get it done with fundraising. If there's anything I learned is staggeringly time consuming, probably 10X more than I thought it was. It's incredible. Eats every, eats every moment of your emotional energy while you're really in the thick of it. And we wanted to get it started and finished as soon as we can. Straight equity with a clean cap. We had 13 people on our cap table. So I want to finalize this with two last questions and before we wrap up here. So at the end of this story, nine months later into this, how much have you totally raised out of that first seed round? What are you doing differently and more from an education standpoint after you've already been through this seed round, figuring it out and stumbling through successfully? What are you doing differently on this series A? And what's your, what's your story behind the series A? And then lastly, um, we talked about network and lawyers. What are the last three things, if you had to choose five, and if you can keep all this in your head, I'll, I'll remind you. What are the last three things that you would advise to a brand new entrepreneur breaking out of corporate, starting their own thing, or joining something that they're getting invited to on a startup? What would you tell them 
last three things after network and lawyers being so important in, in starting a startup and, and running with one. If you, can, if you can keep all that in your head and, and tell that straight line, let me know. If not, I'll start from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Let me see if I can get there. Um, What'd you close? Finish off the story with what you closed yeah. and when you closed it. And So we, we ended up closing the whole $2 million. Awesome. And we, again, so that little weird party where we were at like a million five, I remember we had a million six fifty and it was a Friday night and I had like a party in my kitchen with my wife because we couldn't conceive of having raised that much money. And then I woke up Monday morning and said, there's $350,000 out there. I got to go find it. And I got about three weeks and we didn't know where it was going to come from. Right. And the last hundred came on Sunday afternoon. So I remember the guy who said, who the fuck is writing you guys checks? Uh, he originally had said, hey, listen, maybe me and my buddy can partner up. We'll go 50-50 on, on one of the $100,000 shares. And we had been telling people the $100,000 minimum. And you know we told him that and he goes back to his friend and yeah, we can each go in 50-50 and I promise there's a point here, right? And um, so we went back and looked and nowhere in the term sheet did it actually state that there was a hundred thousand dollar minimum. <laughs> so now, so you're the best I, poker player in the world. Basically. That's what I've Well, no, here. no, it was a legitimate mistake. Kevin and I both thought it was in there. We stood psychotically firm on it. And then we go find out. And so now you have this question, which is like, what do we do? Well, we stand on our word because that's what's the most important thing. We went back. It's a hundred and nothing. You're in a loan with your name on it. The term sheet does say you cannot buy shares on behalf of somebody else. So it's not like you guys can 50-50 behind the scenes, a hundred apiece, or man, I'm bummed that I can't take your money, right? Uh, so he came in for the hundred and he's been a great, you know, great help and advice. Love him as an investor. And then on Sunday afternoon, the, literally the day before the paperwork's all going to be closed on Monday, I got an email from him. He's, hey, man, my buddy wants it. <laughs> we said, what? Right? Like, it's, it's Sunday afternoon. I'm trying not to work. I'm working on work-life balance, right? But I'm, I'm psycho. And so I open my phone. I'm, like, scanning through. And I'm, like, what does this email say? What? So, again, to having a good lawyer, a good lawyer who's doing securities and fundraising, checks his email on a Sunday afternoon, and within 30 minutes had kicked the term sheet to the new investor in DocuSign, and we were we wired money the next morning. Closing $2 million. Closed the last 100000 Technically, the last bit was like 98 and change, the way the sort of share count worked out. But yeah, Amazing. closed the entire $2 million. And I... Congratulations, by the way. That's Thank you. Huge. If I sound incredulous, it's because kind of I am. It's more evidence than anything of set the goal and then wake up every day and just like go at it as hard as you can. Yeah. And we didn't, we had people tell us $2 million is an insane raise for what you guys are trying to do. Like we had more than one person tell us, are you sure that's what you want to say out loud? But we had a plan and we're working that fine. So more concisely, because I know you're still in that journey. Ah, yeah, sorry. About your series A. Yeah. What have yeah. you learned from starting from white sheet of paper and now you've closed this, we'll call it oversubscribed seed round, unusually large seed round for 
let's call them people who knew nothing when they quit, which is an amazing stroke of tenacity and luck and everything lining up in the universe, which is awesome. And you being the best poker player now that I know. Um, but now that you have all of this, what are you doing from educated eyes as you now pursue your series A? Um, so, you know, in, in series seed, we ended up with a little spreadsheet that was tracking the people that we had talked to and the likelihood and the amount that we thought they, you know, top and low. So we kind of had started to kind of model it. We're a lot more aggressive now sort of CRMing it. So we've got a list with a funnel that we're working. We're trying to actually like qualify firms. Our angels, several of the people that invested with us, I mean, and this is, uh, this is humbling because, um, you know, several of these people are like, I don't understand all of the technology. I don't understand any of the technology that you're talking about, but I got a little bit of spare money that I'm willing to put into something that's high risk because you have convinced me that you believe so strongly in this, that it's worth, you rolled the dice with your, your, your livelihood, with your kids, with everything, right? So I'm going to roll with you. That is a very different investor from the series A institutional investor. I'm kind of like weirdly excited about it because the professional series A investors self-qualify publicly many times what they're very interested in. You can find them on LinkedIn, they, right? Like there's tons more ability to target our activities. And I think the expectations of a lot of those firms are more clear. I think if we, we're, we're talking about whether, you know, how hard and aggressively we'll head over towards like the family office space. Um, and I think we'll probably see more of that angel style over there where it's a little bit more diverse in the demands. But so many of the venture firms now, at least in that series A, B round that we're looking at, like everybody on my list, they're all beyond the, hey, we're a venture firm, we have money, into we're a venture firm and we differentiate in this way, right? Like we like this kind of firm and we help founders in these ways. So they're self-identifying, they're identifying verticals that they're interested in, they're identifying stages, they're telling you what kind of founders they like. Beyond the frustration of, and I, I love the psychology behind, if you can't get your deck sent to me as a warm intro, you're not good enough at networking to get my money. I love that. I love it. And also I hate it because you've done all this work to fully <laughs> self-identify, right? Like I'm a data guy and I'm all about interoperability and I'm like, damn it, can't I just like fill out a form and you do you like me, do you not like me? But at the end of the day, you know, you go way back to it's the jockey and the horse analogy. Yeah. And, and, and so oh, you said besides networking money, right? What would I tell a founder? Yeah. And so the, the, the five, if I'm, if I'm wrapping up with five things here, we, you've clearly made it very important for entrepreneurs who are hearing this, why a network is necessary, right? Advice, P people telling you things when you know nothing. So network, human beings, people you can trust. That's number one. Number two is lawyers, right? Um, the other three, you don't have to overthink, but just bigger milestones that you've come across where you are in this past nine months, like what are, and they could be as soft and spiritual as you wanted to be, or as hard and technical as you wanted to be. But what are three other things that you would just tell another entrepreneur who was you last September sweating on the possible idea of resigning in October? Um, there are some really good books about the venture capital business. 
I mean, this is the challenge. I, I've looked back at that and I, we talked to the, on, on the clubhouse room this morning, right? That series seed, a couple of folks with a crazy idea and a PowerPoint and a like that. I still wish there was more guidance for that, right? That's still, because the guidance for that right now is go on a worldwide road show with 87 angel syndicates for five and $10,000 checks. Like you're almost spending them as fast as you're getting them just to get by. And by so the way, really to pop that bubble, the guidance that you're looking for, you and I are creating that right now. So all the other entrepreneurs that could hear <laughs> that amazing story of like the humanism that you had to go through to leave corporate. I mean, that's guidance right there. So sorry to take you off, but we're creating it right now. Yeah, no. And I, I yeah. And so maybe that's, <laughs> if there's, it, it's more about like lessons that I learned that sound really weird, but one of them is there's, you know, you go back and forth on this, right? Uh, but shortly speaking, there's probably more people that you can find that have a hundred grand to throw on a really good idea that you have. Because less about the idea and it's more about the you, right? It's the you and the idea and the industry that you're in. And yeah, there's all these, the confluence, right? But um, venture capital is kind of like casino too, right? And you feel really good about Black 12 or whatever today. I, it's harder than you think because of the psychology. You've got to go from, you know, I'm a technical person. That's, you know, thing three on the list is be ready for the, you know, sort of heavy transformation that you have to go through. And I had some experiences much earlier in life. I talked about how did I get my job at Stryker? I took hundreds of no's right to the face. Um, I, I've had a couple of experiences in my life, you know what I mean? Where just everybody tells you you can't do it. You, you do have to develop that. I mean, I woke up in the morning and you know, I'm telling my wife, like, we're, we're like really short on cash right now because, you know, we still haven't raised this money yet. And it's almost Christmas and there's a bunch of kids and she's like, so we started a startup. It's all going to be okay, right? But we're literally missing the paycheck at Christmas time, right? I mean, we had, we got a little more. You got some, say, everybody's got a cushion maybe, but it starts getting spooky. Um, just get stronger, you know, tomorrow's going to come. You're going to be okay. Yeah. Network lawyers, grit, grit. Yeah, I guess grit. Maybe you'd call it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't know where I got it, other than that. Just I do, right? I got five kids to feed, and I've got a couple of employees. You know, I've I've known two of my employees, several of my employees now. I've actually I've known collectively these people fifty plus years, and they are relying on Kevin and myself to do the right things, right? So maybe there's to this notion of sort of that, that quit. And we've been running teams for a while, you know, so you kind of get used to it. There's a different level of responsibility between I'm managing a team in corporate America and you can just reorg that shit to somebody else next week. And me and Kevin are setting the policies and we're the ones with access to the bank account and we're paying, we're running payroll and people are dependent on us. Yeah. Right. And there's a, there's a shift there somewhere and just get, be ready for it. It's not bad. No. I mean, so, and maybe some of that was, we, we. It helped turn your, your beard gray, I'm sure. Yeah, well, <laughs> it did a lot of it. So maybe, yeah, I, you know, network, I can't talk about network enough. Yeah. Really, I, um, you know, whether it's uh, uh, LinkedIn or other places, I, I look back at like younger engineering me 
and kind of wish I could tell him, you know, you should have paid more attention to, to, to understanding how to network better. Um, but I, Giovanni has been a really good inspiration, like understanding brand, right? Like what's your, I remember having a boss, I need to go apologize to him at some point. We got this whole debate. It was like, you know, you need to work on your brand. And I was like, what is a brand? I'm an engineer. I don't need a brand. I write, you know, I produce valuable shit. That's my brand. And it, but it's not, right? It's totally not. Transitioning into sort of that mode um, changed the fundraising experience. It really did. There was this, this whole kind of subtle transformation there around my job is not just chief engineer, right? There, you, you've got to change into marketer. You've got to, you know, your brand is, your brand is what the capitalists are giving you the money for right now, right? You've got a PowerPoint and a beard. <laughs> you talk really good line, right? So, so what happens if we jump to the end? And if yeah, jump to the end. No, 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 of the five, because I think you just brought out two of them throughout this whole conversation. Yeah. What happens if it's network, lawyers, grit, books? So I was going to say books is the next one. I, I didn't. Brand or marketing, brand and marketing, those five. Yeah, yeah I, I did. I found a bunch. You've recommended multiple good books. Um, and then I started following a couple guys. I, yeah, so books and brand would be it. And just brand for the company is, uh, uh, you know, you're a little tiny startup and we're kind of in stealth mode. So you're kind of being secret. And I love what the guy talked about this morning, Michael, I believe was his name. You know, you see other people and all you see is the public view that all these other firms are putting out there, right? And what you know and what you feel is all of your internal inadequacies and the shit that's not going right and the whatevers and the, the thing that didn't get done yesterday and you're a little more behind, maybe you feel like. And that recognizing for me really hardcore, it's not just people, right? You, you, if you compare, there's a beautiful saying that I love. If you wander around comparing other people's outsides to your insides, you'll always be on the losing end of the comparison. I and like so when, when I look at some of these other people and the players, they've got years of good marketing material and they've got a polished message and they got all, and it can make you feel so inadequate. <laughs> but I mean, really, it's crushing sometimes. But that's why you got into this. And they didn't have that when they started either. They were right where you are. So go get some marketing, go read about brand, go figure out what you want your brand to be. And then like lawyers, go pay a professional or in our case, a group of them and they'll help you through that journey. But be ready for that to like, maybe that's the big one is, be ready for that overwhelming. And I've heard people say that it gets better, but that overwhelming feeling when one of your perceived competitors launches some amazing new product announcement and you're just like, oh shit, there's so much, right? It's just like, it's bad. And I've gotten down to about 15 minutes. Of? recovery time when i read one of those <laughs> it takes me about 15 minutes now i'm just like Oof. boy there's some geniuses over there and i'm like well there's 300 of them and it's like me we're doing fine but that's the beauty of a startup that's the that's the beauty of being an entrepreneur and starting your own thing so on that point and we're wrapping up here and i i, 
I think this is amazing for a few reasons. So first and foremost, I think it's hysterical that we've managed to go this long and actually extract the story that fundamentally that I wanted, right? I, I really did want to talk about um, series, uh, seed funding and also how you went about it, right? Um, but the best part about this whole thing is the audience listening to this, I, I mean, I know what it is, but the audience won't. We don't even know what HDM Labs is. So on that point, <laughs> after they listen to this, they're going to have to go to your website, pay attention to future press releases and follow you. And the, and the beauty about this was it was truly demystifying raising capital, like you mentioned earlier on, but telling your story. So as opposed to what I originally intended, and this is so startup-esque, um, what you originally intended never turns out to be what you suppose it should look like initially. And then the way it finishes looks like something totally different. Um, I wouldn't say it looks totally different, but I wanted to focus on the mechanics of seed capital and, and how you came into that. But even when you listen to this whole story that you share with us today, again, from the very beginning until right now, it is, if you're in corporate with an idea and you ever want to leave to become a founder and what it actually takes to make it through your first year, that's what this story is. It's how to become a founder and get seed capital. That's what this episode was all about. And I think it was absolutely brilliant because there's so many people out there who have ideas or who are on this precipice or cusp of wanting to take that leap into entrepreneurship and are scared shitless to never be able to do that. And I wonder how many startups will never be started by people who should be starting them, but they just don't have the courage or the grit or the network or whatever it may be to get them over that line. And I think if anything, what you share with us today is literally a story of how do you go from building a career and then having really cool experiences along the way of, you know, career um, fairs where you crashed and starting with corporate and striker and then moving because of family reasons and having consulting gigs, a couple back to back and then joining striker again, and then joining Oris, which was your first startup and going through an acquisition to leave and, and go do your thing. And, and now look at where you are today. So I think this story turned out much better than I even expected. I knew your story. I thought it was sexy to begin with, but the actual amount of time and detail we've spent on it has been incredible for me. And I think anyone who ever wants to start a startup should listen to this. So I would, yep. no, please go. I was going to say, I, I really just want to qualify that because we quit on the advice of some great people, kind of right, and like strong belief in each other, right? Four of us, we're gonna go take over the world. Um, but later I read books and things that did a much better job and I feel lucky because I feel like our very specific, like what we are trying to do does fit the criteria for a venture backed company very well. Not all ideas are a good fit for the venture, whether it's a safe or whether it's anything else. Like there's lots of good business ideas that are successfully executable business ideas. They're still not valid for venture. And if there's anything in retrospect that I possibly would change, maybe it would have been to understand that a little better. But in most med tech, I feel like it is the way that the majority of that innovation happens. So it feels actually much more straightforward in a med tech entrepreneurial space than in the software space where I am. Yeah. So I apologize for, for sort of interrupting. That's If there's anything that I would qualify, some days I feel really lucky. Like we kind of, you go read the list and you go, are you a 10X? You read the seven criteria and you say, I say yes to every one. 
but I didn't know there was a list of seven before I quit my job either. And what if you quit your job and say, you know, I got all these Paul's and everything. And the, the answer is no to all but one. And we should have a discussion about the viability of the plan. So I, I would temper the insane optimism with, you know, it's a good partner. We had it vetted by some other great people. So it's not just a great story. Sorry. I, I love I, I love your story. I still think it's a great story. And I'm glad that you told it here today. And Brian, I want to thank you very much for obviously our friendship, our ability to network with one another for your time today and for sharing your story. Is there anything I can do for you? Is there anything you want to retake in this? Is there any question you want to re-ask? Any answer you want different? And we're still recording. And while you even asked that, I would say no, because I am going through a montage of everything that we covered on this call. And I think it's so much better than we, I, like I said, I originally anticipated. I mean, you literally told a story of going to corporate, going through an acquisition, leaving corporate, starting a company under duress, not knowing anything and, and now look at where you are, which this is the most entrepreneurial. It doesn't get any more entrepreneurial than that. It just gets different. So everyone should be hearing this story, which I think okay. is incredible. So on that note, I'm going to end this with what you helped me with. And I want to let the world know that this is MedTech Money, demystifying raising capital. Thank you very much, co-founder, CTO of HMD Labs, Brian Green, for joining us. I really appreciate your time today. Giovanni, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.